You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I think this whole point about generalized increasing returns is critical. I was just reading an article, ironically, this morning by Paul Krugman, um, and he makes the following thing. I'd like to get this. This is a, a I'm, I'm going to give you a question out of the out of the blue here. But uh, so he argues that we knew about increasing returns ever since Alan Young. And even in, in Alfred Marshall and externalities and everything like that. But that we economists suppress those ideas and then they had to be resurrected again. And when he resurrects it, I think he resurrects economies of scale, not necessarily increasing returns of scope, all right? I I think that's a legitimate criticism of of what Krugman is doing. He wouldn't see it that way because he sees that, but how would you alternatively tell the story about, you have Adam Smith, division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. You have Alan Young elaborating that proposition. And then you still have, you know, George Stigler writing about the Smithian proposition, but not in the same way. And Alan Young, of course, says an intellectual connection through night. So you would think Stigler, of all people, would have gotten it, you know, kind of thing. So what's your alternative history about why it is that we misunderstood this fundamental point about the increasing returns to a particular pattern of institutions? So let me relate this back first to Buchanan, Pete, and then I'll answer your question directly. One of the And this relates to your point about Buchanan, about the worker ethic and perseverance and just sitting on the chair, right, to work. What is Buchanan fundamentally telling us, right, is that the creative powers of of a civilization are not necessarily dependent upon a small group of geniuses. It resides in the creative efforts, right, of those small marginal efforts of all of us, right, to increase our productive capabilities, right? So not only does Buchanan have a, a find a great wisdom in ordinary individuals, but he has a great faith. And, and there are reasons why we should, we should have that. And let me give three examples to illustrate it. But the way to understand these three examples, Pete, I think we have to draw a distinction between entrepreneurship within a particular context, a set of rules, a set of institutions, and entrepreneurship over a set of rules and a set of institutions. So let me, and and this will, and it's the fact that entrepreneurship, both institutions and entrepreneurship are not, not only neglected within the rules, but also over the rules is what's be, why this economies of scope point is yeah. being missed because the economies of scale point in its oversimplified rendition, simply says, oh, if you double your capital investments, you'll, you'll double your output. So if we just pile brick upon brick upon, upon brick, yeah, we'll get wealthier. No, but capital needs to be allocated 
to its most valued uses, right? But not only that, in ordinary individuals using their unique knowledge of time and place have to discover ways in which to allocate their, their, not only their capital, but their labor and land. Let me give the first example. I'm sure people listening have heard of Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. Fantastic entrepreneurs. But in my mind, Pete, I think the most important entrepreneur in the 20th century, the one that's most impacted our, of our lives, but yet is relatively unknown, right? Not taking away any, anything from those three individuals I said, the individual most responsible for the error of globalization we see today is Malcolm McLean. He was a, right, his story is phenomenal, is that he pioneered modern containerization, right? I used to see these huge container ships, Pete, off the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn, sailing into the port of Newark. I'm like, where did these come from? And his story is phenomenal, right? Here's an individual, no college education, barely had a high school education, if I understand correctly. He was a North Car Carolina truck driver, but he had an entrepreneurial insight, Pete. He was alert to a profit opportunity. He realized that it took just as much time to unload freight in Brooklyn. That's where most of the ships were docked and, and, and the dock workers worked. Not, it's Newark today where all, most of the containers are offloaded. But what he realized is it took just as much time to unload that freight and then put it on the back of a truck using long shoremen, using what's called a break bulk method, mm -hmm. right? He simply took surplus exactly. World War II ships and the existing technology and recombined it in such a way that, for example, these containers, these metal boxes, which is not something new, individuals have been shipping goods in, in boxes for decades, if not centuries, just use a crane and then plop it on the back of a flatbed of a truck. Now, just imagine all the goods and services we've been able to enjoy precisely because that entrepreneurial effort has reduced, not only reduced the cost of transportation, but it's also reduced the cost of enforcing property rights yeah. in shipping cargo, right? When you're shipping cargo, Pete, time is money, yeah. right? The ability to, right, when you, Exchanging title to goods and services is not just about exchanging the good itself. Yeah. It's about reliability of time itself. Yeah. That also was a property rights innovation that increased the scope of production. Yeah. I, I know we're running short on time, but let me give just two more brief examples. Double entry bookkeeping in medieval Europe. This was a technology that ex existed in public administration in, in China. But there was an entrepreneurial insight to deploy it in order to balance the books of businesses. Now, with double entry bookkeeping, what does that allow? Some what is that? What's created as a byproduct of that? Profit and loss signals that are concentrated upon the firm firm owner. Using less time to calculate their books, right? Their profits and loss statements allows them to free up their time. And yeah. allows land, labor, and capital to be utilized in other efforts. And to be assessed. And to be assessed, yeah. right? Um, 
All right, let's, uh, I mean, that's uh, all very good examples. And I'm going to come back to this theme, but, you know, this sounds like a lot of economics that we're talking about, but economic sociology is, it should be emphasized, economics. There's two words in that term. It's it's, uh, economics and sociology. And, you know, the Durkheimian version of sociology is to somehow claim that the social is in everything, but we're more or less talking about a Weberian approach to economic sociology, in which case you're, you're balancing economic theory with factors such as the law, the polity, and society as, as, in general. And so the way that you think about it in terms of the way you talked earlier about the science and the art is actually one way to do the economic sociology and address these issues and have the intellectual discipline of economics, but yet have the open, more open questions about the feedback mechanisms that's generated by these seismic changes. I mean, what happened because the globalization is amazing what it's done to change the world. At the same time, it was initiated by a a recognition of a property opportunity, which hitherto was unrecognized. So, so, you know, it's, it's the economics is, is, is critical, all of that. So, let me switch gears slightly. I apologize for the personal nature uh, of, of what I'm going to this line that I'm going to ask you now, but it's about the bigger issue you've experienced, your experience have touched on. So in this case, free mobility of people worldwide. Um, so not only are you from a family of immigrants, you're married to Andrea, who's from Romania. Uh, besides, uh, you know, your absolutely wonderful love story, which we don't have to go in and and talk about here. Uh, There is issues of immigration policy, difficulties that couples face, as well as companies, as well as universities. Uh, This is right. And so, you know, we're we're out trying to uh, discover the best talent in the world and, and engage in mutually beneficial exchanges with them. Companies are out to try to find the best uh, you know, uh, uh, athletes or whatever, let's say I'm a sports team, right? I don't care whether or not the kid grew up in the Bronx or grew up in, uh, in, in, as we just saw this last year in, in Africa, right? If, if I'm able to get the best talented kid to come play for my team and he happens to be from Africa, you know, I win the Nash, I win the, the NBA title, you know, and, and I celebrate it. Um, and so, okay, so, you know, uh, and that's, by the way, by via Greece, right? So, you know, they, they from Africa to migrate to Bre- Greece to then, you know, be able to come over here. So it's pretty amazing. Anyway, so uh, at a philosophical level, uh, what do you think about the relationship between immigration and human freedom in general? Just, just the concept of human freedom. And then at a utilitarian level, what do you think are the main benefits of immigration? Um, and if we both have an argument on the freedom ground and on the utilitarian ground, why do you think there's still barriers that are being erected, you know, to free mobility of, of people and, and, and capital? So go ahead. So at a philosophical level, what I would say, Pete, is that human freedom or liberty, if you want, if you want to put it that way, and private property are inextricably inextricably intertwined. They can't be separated. Now, that sounds like a very crude way of of putting it, right? That I'm putting it in a very, because usually we associate private property, right, with commerce and market relations. But 
as I had mentioned earlier, private property itself is nothing more than a social relationship. So this goes back to the Durkheim point. The social is everywhere. They are the set of social relationships about, and they set the expectations about the ability for individuals to not only use resources and exclude others from using the resources, but the ability to exchange. What's immigration? Nothing more, right? Than the exchange, the ability for individuals to interact, right? Mm -hmm. But more fundamentally, I want to, on a more philosophical level, I, I said that more in a political economy level, but from a philosophical level, property rights are human rights, Pete, right? The ability for individuals to freely associate is not demarcated by a political border, right? So this goes to the point that, right? So, and, and, and this has ramifications for the way we think about not, not only just our social relations, but markets, right? So if, for example, businesses are not allowed to attract additional talent, they, they can't, they're not free to exchange, right? And voluntarily offer, for example, wages to an immigrant, that's a, that's a violation of private property. But, you know, this is a story about immigrants and, you know, I'm a first generation, right? Or second generation, because my parents are uh, immigrated here. Uh, American, right? There's something very American about immigration that's tied to the First Amendment, right? And our ability to freely associate with each other, right? And that's very important at, the, at a philosophical level. So what I would say is to summarize it very briefly is that you can't have human freedom without respect for private property. And by private property, I simply mean the set of social relationships that will be respected by a political authority, which includes the ability for individuals to exchange, right? And interact with each other, right? Now, what, at a utilitarian level, what are the main benefits of immigration? Let me illustrate this through a particular example. But, but at a fundamental level, what I see as the main benefit of immigration is that immigrants bring, as you would put it, Pete, a new set of eyeglasses that individuals would not otherwise see, right? In a particular economy, they fulfill, they, they fill a particular gap in the market that the domestic population would not, or the native population would not see, right? So to illustrate this point, uh, the founder of Bank of America, Bank of America originally started as the Bank of Italy yeah. in California by a man named Amadeo Giannini. Now, he lived in a tight-knit Italian-American community in San Francisco, where, in fact, uh, Joe DiMaggio's parents first uh, immigrated to. But he realized that in the early period, in the early 20th century, there was some discrimination against Italian Americans, right? That they would be turned away from particular services, banking services. And he saw a profit opportunity to fill, given that he was embedded in this environment and he saw the work ethic of Italians, their high savings rates. Hey, there's, right? If individuals want to turn away, if businesses want to turn away these individuals, this is a profit opportunity 
profit opportunity for me to fill this void in this community. Given the fact that he was embedded in that community and he had that unique knowledge about that community, he was able to fill a void that would have not otherwise been, uh, have been filled. And this reveals, Pete, another important social dimension that transcends economic growth. And this goes back to the due commerce thesis that you had mentioned a little bit earlier, is that market exchanges place costs on discrimination, right, on racial and ethnic margins, right? Given that there's a, a particular preference for these activities, right, markets create these high-powered incentives to erode them and allow individuals to learn and exchange to and facilitate toleration and learning across particular groups of different cultures, of different religions, and different backgrounds. Yeah, it's a um, yeah, I and mean, that's uh, and and uh, do you have a what's your favorite hypothesis about why it is that we keep getting uh, barriers erected? What I would say is that the modern economic growth is so new in human history, right? If we were to put the history of humankind on a 24-hour clock, Pete, the massive explosion in economic prosperity that we've experienced, right, in the world today, and that we're seeing, to, that we're seeing transpire in China, in India, and so on and so forth, would literally only represent minutes on that clock. Yeah. So we've experienced so much change in such a short amount of time that what I would say is that the way in which the human mind has been hardwired, for lack of a better word, which has been hardwired to live in, right, in, in, in interaction that's not anonymous, right? but tight-knit communities like the one that I grew up in, right? That this, that, that the scope of anonymous exchange of anonymous interaction has so much outpaced, right? The economic, the face-to-face the, the -face interaction that there has been pushback against it, yeah. right? All right, that's a, there, there's, there's a lot of hypotheses to explore in that kind of research program that I think would be valuable. So let me move to uh, the last couple questions here. So um, in my estimation, you're one of the best natural economic minds I've ever encountered uh, in close to 40 years of teaching. In a fundamental sense, you get price theory um, in a way that very few people uh, get. However, unlike most natural economists, I feel you're, one of your great strengths is that you also have always understood and stressed context, legal, political, social context. So it's not just homo economicus, you know, damn the torpedoes all the way ahead. It's always, as you put it earlier, individuals striving to do the best they can given their circumstances and yet a lot of emphasis on put on those circumstances and, and a lot of the empirical aspects of your own work, it goes into those, understanding those circumstances in time and place that individuals are engaged in this action. So how do you see those factors, the particular, both 
shaping and being shaped by rational choice or economic man. Um, is your attentiveness to this particular a consequence of your background in studying history and philosophy? Um, or is it because of your experiences growing up in both assimilating into American culture, but also in particular to New York City culture? Um, or is it from your formal study of property rights and development economics, which is, you know, there's a lot of things being mixed in there, or do you see it as some combination of these? And can you illustrate how you see all of this working out in, let's say, the play between the universal and the particular in a couple of your recent papers, for example, in the evolution and development of the light ships? Uh, which is an award-winning paper, um, and or in your more recent paper on trade or raid uh, um, with, uh, I, I believe it's the Northwestern, uh, you know, native native tribes, um, or in your work on the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, all three of which are very deeply historically researched, but guided by you know, some universal principles and economics to illuminate and the play between that. So maybe this goes back to your art and science conversation, but, you know, maybe play that out a little bit. And if you can explain like, you know, as a young, as an, as a mentor, potential mentor to younger economists that want to take the natural economist, but turn the natural economist into a properly trained economist, as Jim Buchanan would call it. There's a difference between those two things the natural economist and the properly trained economist. And, 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 and so, you know, how do you, how do you react to those set of questions that I just gave you? I'm going to, I'll answer that question by starting at the end, Pete. And what I would say to young folks are two things is one that's obvious, but maybe another that's not so obvious is that you should allow your curiosity to drive your research. Don't let what you think is the hot and sexy topic right now drive what your interest may be, which is in some sense quite obvious, but not always practiced. But another thing that I would say is allow your what you regard as potential liabilities or potential uh, or potential experiences that you had when you were young that were not directly related to economics to do not discount them or disregard them. So when I started my training as an economist, all right, many of the experiences that you were that you're talking about right now, Pete, I thought that they were irrelevant. They had no part or they could be become no part of my research or my or what I am interested in now. But one thing I did realize very very early on, coming from an immigrant background, I put a priority on be on staying within the fundamentals, sticking to the fundamentals, being able to communicate economics clearly and concisely, or at least I've tried to do that. But more importantly, given my right multilingual, multicultural, uh, multicultural background in the sense of growing up across different cultures, it's given me a priority to understand that in order to understand observation, historical observations, you have to put yourself in the mind of the individual at that particular place and time, right? Not what you think they ought to be doing, right? right? 
So let me illustrate this with the point about the my work with uh, Vincent Geloso, my co-author on this project on light chips. And what applying my understanding of the market as simply a process of learning and discovery by entrepreneurs, a missing market today is a profit opportunity for entrepreneurs to fill that market. Now, there were two entrepreneurs at the time in which we study this case in Lightships. This is 17th and 18th century uh, England and Wales. The common conventional wisdom in economics is that provision of lightships, or I should say lighthouses, are what are called a public good. That these are goods that are that could be consumed simultaneously by more than one individual, and they're not excludable. So it's difficult to collect payment, Pete. Mm -hmm. And that therefore, what that implies is if, if it's difficult to collect payment or enforce property rights in payment, that must imply that the market can't provide this good and that therefore the government needs to step in and provide this good. So there's this missing market that, that, that the government needs to correct. But what we, both uh, Geloso and I, realized is that a market that's imperfect, such as this one, reveals, right, if someone has an entrepreneurial insight to fill the void, there's a profit opportunity to complete this market. And there were two entrepreneurs, David Avery and Robert Havlin, who discovered on the Thames River, right, where, uh, uh, which basically flows up London, there is, right, it's a very, very unsafe river to navigate. There are rocks and shoals. It's very, very easy for a shipwreck. So there was this profit opportunity to provide lighting services, not as lighthouses, but as floating lighthouses or light ships, right? Which is basically a boat that provides light. Now, the way that they were able to collect payment was through subscription payments. This was their entrepreneurial innovation, that what was new. Now, what's interesting about the lightship example, historically, is that you know, we're, we're seeing the battle between Uber and Lyft and taxi cab industries around the world. The lightship was the Uber of the 18th century. Right. They were directly confronting right, a monopoly right, or, or a government-sponsored monopoly in the provision of lighthouses. Mm -hmm. right? So lighthouses, as they were provided in England and Wales, there were private entrepreneurs, but they were backed, their ability to provide, to build lighthouses was backed by a monopoly privilege, what was called at the time letters patent. But these prices are higher than they than would have been prevailed had the market been open. So the high monopoly prices represent a, a profit opportunity to enter the market. But the lighthouses, specifically Trinity House, the, the authority that was sanctioned to govern and to enforce these letters patent, right? They sued against Avery and Havlin and said, only we have 
a particular privilege in collecting mm-hmm. these light dues, right? So it's not an instance of what economists call a market failure. It's a failure of the market to exist due yes. to a crowding out of, of an entrepreneurial profit opportunity. By political entrepreneurs. By political entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, maybe you should just quickly talk a little bit about your kingdom of two Sicilies, because that, again, highlights a long and enduring puzzle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you if, if, so, if you do that briefly, you know, just try to hammer that home, I think. So very briefly, right, modern Italy itself was born, right, in 1871. But historically, the north and south of Italy has been divided. But since 1871, we've seen a large gap in the political and economic performance of Sicily, of, of southern Italy, south of Rome which represented what was called the kingdom of the two Sicilies. And there is this path dependence that the southern part of Italy has been much poorer. Now, there's an argument, a very popular argument, that what that explains this lack of path, path depend, this path dependence is because of the authoritarian or cultural heritage that Sicily inherited from the Normans who had colonized Italy. And that this authoritarian regime that had became embedded within the political culture of Sicily crowded out not only the conditions for democracy, but also well-functioning markets. But what my work illustrates is that there were prerequisites, right? Sicily was no different in many respects from the path towards the rule of law and the formation of democracy and markets as the rest of Italy. They had a parliament as early as 1130. This isn't a modern democratic parliament as we would envision it today, but neither was the parliament that was established in England in the 13th century. So the Sicilian parliament predated the English parliament. What had happened, this evolution towards democracy and the rule of law was stifled by property rights arrangements, informal property rights arrangements, which had been respected by peasants in Sicily being stamped out through land reform. And because of political discretion, the insecurity that was created by the kingdom of the two Sicilies, both peasants and landlords, not knowing how property rights in land were gonna be demarcated, this led to regulatory capture in the delineation of property rights. But it also explains, right, as the work of Diego Gambetta illustrates, the origins of the Sicilian Mafia. Because what the, what the Sicilian Mafia first did was to establish an extra legal, right? They were entrepreneurs in the sense of filling a void in enforcing property rights where the government could not. Yeah, I think that. I think that it's a, you know, you're running an interesting intellectual horse race there because the, I, I don't want to get to the mafia point, but the earlier point, which is that basically Southern Italy is characterized as a low trust society. Northern Italy is a high trust society. The hypothesis is that the reason why it's low trust is because low levels of social capital for a variety of reasons. One of them, what you just identified. And, uh, and I, th- and, and the way I interpret your argument is that you're saying, no, it's not low levels of social capital, but instead confusion over the delineation of property rights. 
and, and security of those property rights. And so as a result, the reason why that so so the lack the way of I would trust, the behavior of low trust is a rational response to the relative price that property owners would hold given the low levels of trust. The way I would that that's exactly right, Pete. The way I would summarize the point is that the cost that, that the cause, excuse me, of the relative poverty experienced in southern Italy and Sicily today relative to the north, the cause is not a lack of social capital. Right. right? The lack of social capital is a consequence, a byproduct of, of, the, of an insecurity of property rights. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, I have two final questions that I want to get at as bonuses. So the first one is just to get you to talk a little bit about Julian Simon. Uh, tell us why young economists should spend time reading closely Julian Simon. Julian Simon, as he would characterize himself, was an unconventional con economist, but he's only unconventional because he was awed by the conventional. So let me give an example to illustrate this point. His work on the human, right, on the ultimate resource and the human mind, where he studies, for example, how economic growth, right, is correlated with population growth. That, for example, the world isn't explained by an increasing scarcity of resources, but actually an increasing abundance yeah. of natural resources as population rises. Yeah. So he's a very counterintuitive economist, right? By having faith and optimism in just ordinary individuals tinkering on the margin, right? Another example where- We end up making more than we take. Yeah. Right. That on, on the significant margins, because of our tinkering and our imagination, we end up making more than we take, therefore leaving more surplus for the next generation. That's to right. Make more and than, than we take. Yeah. Right. But not only that, he finds economics or the, the basics of economics at every corner of our society. Yeah. Right. So, for example, his devising of the airline overbooking auction system, right? Prior to this, individuals would be bumped to flights, right? But now because of him, airlines now offer vouchers or credits through a reverse auction, right? Simply by seeing this profit opportunity, he was able to provide a solution to what was otherwise regarded as something as being impossible. So what I would say is he is regarded, right? What makes him phenomenal is that he was able to take what was simply mundane and ordinary and make it extraordinary. Yeah. So uh, just as a, as a fine point, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot on this, but can you recount uh, Julian Simon's interaction with Milton Friedman over the airline overbooking problem to show how Simon's basic economics gave scope to things that Friedman's economics didn't allow? As far as I understand, one of the things that makes Simon unique is that he didn't take the, the as, as, as Thorsten Veblen put it, his model of man wasn't, you know, the lightning calculator of pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain, excuse me, or as Israel Kirzner would put it, the Rabinzian maximizer, which is the way Friedman modeled human beings, right? And so that therefore, right, if you have a strict maximizer, such as that, 
there is no profit opportunity to be dis- to be discovered because everything right is already uncovered you might say that means and ends are already given he gives scope to discovery. human choice yeah. by allowing the human being to not only discover the means but also the ends as well right but also what's what's more important i think is the response that he gives to george stigler because stigler argued that the the auction system wouldn't work because there would be collusion right between individuals on the flight and they would constantly bid up the price making it prohibitive prohibitively costly for a particular airline right but we haven't observed that right, right? so Sorry. Friedman argued that it that if it was such a brilliant idea it should have already existed yes right that's how Friedman does it and uh, and Stigler argues that it must un- it must unravel right it must be uh, have an unraveling equilibrium precisely right. yeah so it is interesting and, and it's important to remember is that Simon was educated at Chicago but over in the business school so right. he's more like a Yale Brosen type than he is uh, you know a Beckerian maximizer type so yeah yeah anyway um, Rosalino has a great paper coming out on Simon in the Review of Austrian Economics and a special issue that is being edited by two of our former PhD students, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and a very, it, it's, it's a, a great collection on Simon, I think. Um, last question, Rosalino, okay? Uh, so you've been amazingly productive, young scholar, all right? So you're less than 10 years out from your PhD, you're actually less than five years out from your PhD, but you've produced probably what a lot of PhDs after 20 years would be quite happy uh, having a resume like yours. Um, so you've been very, very productive, very accomplished. It's not conspicuous production. You, you've won a lot of awards. You're a great teacher. So what is it that still keeps you up at night excited about? Like what ideas? What, who are you reading that makes you think like, wow, you know, I, and, 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 and what puzzle in the world uh, has you, has you going? The same puzzle, you know, I'll I'll tie the answer to, you know, what you, the observation that I, that you just made. What I would say is Pete, is that I know as, as Warren Buffett would put it, my circle of competence and I stick to it. Yeah. Which is what I'm fundamentally interested in. And, and if if I, I appreciate what you've said about my so-called productivity, but it's me just specializing on a particular margin that both I'm interested in um, and that I have fun engaging in, which is how ordinary individuals, what keeps me, so to put it short, what keeps me up at night is to understand how what we would regard as ordinary individuals discovering an extraordinary opportunity to provide property rights, to devise better ways for individuals, right, to exchange, to use resources, to engage in technological innovation, and so on and so forth. And what's what's keeping me up at night is working on, right, this book on on price theory um, that we're working on together is to just basically illustrate that indeed the world is full of imperfections, but the way it's made more perfect 
is through creative and insightful entrepreneurs finding ways to solve right ordinary problems by being extraordinary. So I want to put you a little bit on the spot for the very last question, which is just, you know, if you were talking to a sophomore in college and they said, you know, Professor Candela, I have become, you know, completely excited about learning economics. You've taught me, you know, they were in your intermediate micro course and they decide, you know, I want to be an economist. Who can I read? Who can I read that will help prepare me to be a better economist? And to succeed in graduate training, and uh, yeah, I mean those are separate questions. But who is it that you would tell that student to read, or or a couple people, like like no more than three? But yeah. Well, okay. So I will put these in terms of. Let me define it in three ways: an inspiration to be an economist, the motivation to become a. a a economist and then how to practice economics so let me put it that way if i was motivated what the the readings that motivated me to become an economist were the works of for example f.a hayek law legislation and liberty that's what got me and this interdisciplinary aspect of Mm -hmm. economics where economics ties in with political science culture history jurisprudence so on and so forth that's, got, that's what got me really excited about studying economics, right? And this notion that markets are a discovery procedure, as well as the work of Ludwig von Mises, right? So those partic- two particular works, right, inspired me okay. right, to pursue economics, right? The book that you might say motivated me, okay, now I have to consider this as, a, as my profession, uh, and I actually stumble upon this through reading the work of Israel Kersner, right, in the footnotes of his article, the work of Don Lavoy, which is Rivalry and Central Planning. And reading that book said to me, okay, there is right, a way to practice economics, right, market process economics, at a, and, and, and write and teach it at a professional level. Mm-hmm. That motivate, but as a practicing economist, right, the individual who has probably influenced me the most uh, would be, for example, Israel Kersner, as well as Armin Alchin, right? Those two particular economists. But I should say as inspiration, going back to the inspiration, I, I neglect to mention the work of, of Murray Rothbard, particularly his Man, Economy and State. Those, that particular book had a tremendous impact on my initial studies in economics because I wasn't an economics major. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Those are fantastic reading lists for young people to uh, embrace um, and go through as they do it. Um, and then, to, you know, to follow up and see who, you know, currently is doing this stuff, including one Rosalino Candela and, and reading his work. So thank you very much for the conversation, Rosalino. It's been fascinating. And we'll set up another time. We'll come back and we'll talk about, uh, you know, the uh, illegal enforcement of property rights when the official enforcement of property rights is not allowed and how we organize and work in that implicit world um, and what are the consequences of it. So, but thank you very much. It's been great.
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.